0: He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So, my sophomore year in high school, I played with a, a guy who was a senior who was six foot 11. And if you've ever stood next to a six foot 11 individual, it's a pretty awesome sight. You're like, whoa, this guy was athletic. Uh, he could get up and down the floor pretty easily. Um, but there was always this issue when you tried to pass him the ball, butterfingers, off his hands, off his feet, out of bounds. Like, you're just kind of going, what in the world? This guy doesn't fit the profile for the big, clumsy athlete. He actually is pretty athletic, seems to be put together, but just there was something about the turnovers that he would cause and happen in a game and in practice. Three quarters of the way through the season, I will never forget it. There was a pass that went into him that would have just been an easy turn and dunk, but the ball went off his fingertips and hit him in the face and went out of bounds. My coach just loses it, and he says, "'Son, what is your problem? "'Why can you not catch the ball?' And as soon as that phrase was finished, the six foot 11 basketball giant yells out, coach, I can't see the ball. The entire gym stopped. All of us were looking at each other going, are you kidding me? Are you saying you need glasses? I guess. So you're saying you haven't been able to see the ball all season? Yeah. I mean like you should have seen everybody on the court was like we would have had this monster with us dunking on people because he could see the ball but because he couldn't see the ball and because what he saw was blurry everything about his game was affected if i can tell you one thing that paul aims to do through the letter to the colossian church it is to clear up any blurriness about our view of who jesus is And there's a reason he has to do this, because if we have a blurry view of who Jesus is, if we have an incomplete view of who Jesus is, if we are blind to who Jesus is, it will affect how we as the church play. It will affect everything about what we do, who we are, how we view ourselves, when we have an incomplete view of Jesus. This passage that we are looking at this morning is, if not, one of the loudest and clearest and biggest declarations of who Jesus is in the New Testament. If you have been with us the past several weeks, you know that we've talked about the the attack, essentially, that the church of Colossae is under. And they're not under missile attack. They're not under knife attack. They're not under gun attack. They're not under fist attack. But they are literally under attack by teachers of heresy. And I know we joke about heresy, and we talk about the, the heresy, and I, the reason I would say heresy is an attack is because attacks aim to take life. And the truth is, heresy that exists in the church does just that. Heresy is something that is taught, that is contrary to what is understood about what the apostles taught and the scriptures reveal. So it is, a, it is an opposition to what is truth. So for me to say the the church was under attack, I mean under attack, because if heresy leads us away from life, it is essentially taking our life. So when I say that the church at Colossae is under attack, I mean it. It may not be a physical attack, but it is an eventual death that will lead many astray. And so the teachers at this time are saying two things, that Jesus is not enough, and Jesus is not who he says he is. And if that's where we land as the church, then we are headed towards death. We are headed towards a slow, painful identity crisis and eventual loss of our own lives. Paul does not start with a small view of Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, let's talk about how kind and nice Jesus is. Let's talk about how how loving Jesus is. He actually begins with a statement that is off the charts— and leaves us no wiggle room to think Jesus, but a good teacher. Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. I've talked with Christ followers and people who are not, that have all said the same thing. Wouldn't it be cool if we knew what God is like? And I don't know if they understand the statement that they've just made, Because God intends for us to know what he is like. He does not intend to leave us clueless to who he is. He does not intend for us to be kind of wandering around trying to figure it out. That is why he chose to reveal who he is in the scriptures. That is why he chose to put on flesh and come and walk among his creation as the son of God in flesh, Jesus Christ. That is why he chose to not leave us guessing. There are a lot of popular views about God out there. Everybody likes the idea that he's a supreme being, or he's the universe, or he's the force. I mean, good grief, if God can be associated with a Jedi movie, a Star Wars movie, yeah, that's the one I want, right? An orb, a glowing, a glowing floating thing, a, a force, a creator, an old man. There's tons of views about who people would like to say, we think God looks this way. But Paul is practically answering the question, what does God look like And if you want to know, it has been revealed in the person of Christ. That word image actually takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. If you're not familiar, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Yes, it does sound like God is talking to himself, and we'll have a conversation about that in just a second. Then God said, let us Make man, make human beings in our image. Human beings were created to reflect the glory of God. Every single one of us has this thing in us that reflects the elements of our creator. So the first command that was given in scripture, it was not, don't, make, don't worship other false gods. Do you know the first command was, be fruitful and multiply. God's plan was to have little image bearers, little reflections of himself, filling the earth. So in a sense, when the psalmist prays, God, may the glory of your world, of your your name, fill the earth, it was meant to through his image bearers. But you and I know that sin has, has scarred that. So there are elements that we are still able to, though they're veiled and not as well as we were made to reflect him. We can still have acts of compassion, acts of mercy, acts of justice, But we are marked now in a different way. But in the same vein, Jesus is making God known. Not simply as a reflector, though. Jesus of himself said these words in John chapter 14. Jesus told them, he's talking to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus replied, Have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So why are you asking me to show him to you? The mystery of God is big and vast, and do I claim to have all the answers? Absolutely not. But I do claim to suggest he's not leaving us clueless. You don't have to walk around going, what is God like? What does he need? What what do I have to do? What is it? He's actually going, hey, if you'll just let me tell you who, who I am, you'll be able to walk with what I've revealed. Jesus makes the Father known Paul actually, in Acts chapter 17, he sees all these plaques and statues and all these things, and he sees one that says, to the unknown God, like the Romans were so religious that they were like, we're going to label everything we possibly can, and we're going to have a statue to the unknown God. And Paul's like, that's the one I want to tell you about. Because all the other little ones that you're, revealed, you're you're talking about and talking to, they hold nothing on the God of creation. And as these teachers might try to tell the church, look, you know what? If you'll just do this hidden knowledge or these little acts and you'll, you'll work harder and you'll earn more and you'll, your experience with God will be deeper. Paul's saying, you don't even know this invisible God you claim to talk about. And so for Paul, his heartbeat for the church is if you want to know more of God, you have to know more God. Of Jesus. He won't turn them to some other source. He keeps them centered on the one who made them. Verse, uh, verse 15, part B actually says, he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Now, I do love the way the New Living Translation uh, brings this to life because I think it does help clear up some of the confusion of a phrase that is used if you use like the ESV the NASB or NIV it may actually say the firstborn of all creation. It's worth me noting because there are heresies that have developed from this word alone that still exist today. When people say firstborn there was a 4th century council held that put down a man and his his group of followers that were suggesting that Jesus is the first and greatest creation of God. This is heresy. The Son of God, the, the, as Christ followers, we understand that there has never been a time in history that he has not existed. So for them to suggest that the Son of God, Jesus, was the first created being is heresy. It's not okay for me to go, well, maybe I'll just give him that spot, he's the first created. No. That strips him of his deity and his power and everything that we need for salvation. Jehovah's Witnesses still believe that today? And it sounds good. Firstborn, oh, well, he's the supreme creation. Like, no, it actually robs him of who he is and who he says he is himself. You can't cherry pick verses because the rest of Scripture refuses to allow us to see Jesus in this way. Paul has every intention of declaring that the Son of God was around before anything was created. But Jesus walking the earth was not the first time he came into existence. The Son of God has always been, there has never been a time that he was not. And he has been around with God the Father as uncreated all time. So when God's talking to himself, Jesus was there. The Son of God was one of those, them and us. Let us make man in our image. Jesus actually made this statement in John chapter 8. The people looking at Jesus, they're like, you aren't even 50 years old. How can you say you have seen Abraham? Yes, Abraham from the Old Testament. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. There is an important passage in the Old Testament that can help us understand this phrase, firstborn. And it has to do when God is speaking about his promises to David, King David, David and Goliath, that David. Psalm 89, God saying, I will make him, David, my firstborn son, the mightiest king on earth. I will love him and be kind to him forever. My covenant with him will never end. From this psalm, and if you know the scriptures, God is speaking of David. But if you know the story of David's life, you know that David was not the firstborn son. He's actually the youngest of the sons. That phrase, and if you can show Psalm 89 again, I will make him my firstborn son, comma, the mightiest king on earth. Firstborn is a figurative term, and if you look at that psalm, mightiest king on earth gives you an idea of what God is speaking of. First in rank, first in position, first in privilege, first in place. Jesus is not just the first in a series of created beings, He is first over all things. That's why Colossians, we'll read it one more time, 1.15 says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. This will be repeated multiple times in this letter to the Colossian church. To the false teachers, Paul is saying, look, why are you worshiping these created things when you could be worshiping the creator? Why are you worshiping these hidden things when you could worship the revealed creator of the universe and all things? But this is our human struggle. This is where we're at. This is what sin does. Sin aims to rob us of our really living in relationship with the Creator, when we choose to worship created things. Paul actually says that they haven't just rejected the revealed will of God, they've actually begun to follow their own wills. Romans chapter 1, Paul says it this way, forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks, and they began to think up foolish ideas. Here we go. Foolish ideas of what God was like. As a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. This is our sinful condition, not just rejecting the revealed will of God in Christ, but pursuing our own, and we end up utterly foolish. And it is for the foolish that Christ came to reveal God to. Paul reinforces this idea not by pointing out how weak all the idols are, because you can't spend your time ad- identifying everybody's idol, But you can spend your time pointing to the strength of our God. And he does that in verse 16. Everything was created through him and for him. There is no aspect of creation that existed before or without Jesus. Nothing of creation stands on its own apart from him. I love reading books that defend the faith, apologist books. They're not apologizing for the faith. They're defending the faith. And there was a guy um, that they were writing about, his name was Frank Sheed, and he was from, in the 1940s, he was regularly um, debating people who had an um, antagonistic view towards the Christian faith. And he had been given a, um, a reputation for being able to destroy hecklers at these conversations. So if he's trying to defend the faith and there's people who stand up and they mock him, he would just get right back at it. Like he, he wasn't going to show grace. He was like, you're going to mock me. I'm going to mock you. And so he would do these things in, in a very uh, uh, humiliating way, which I, sometimes I think is, is appropriate. Like you need that. Sometimes you need to just tell someone to shut up. And so he did. And so what he would do was he had just finished just um, dis- dis- describing the order and the design in the universe. A heckler stands up in the crowd, and he's like, the universe, there's evil that's happening, there's bad things that are happening. I could create a better universe than your Jesus. And so Frank stands there, and he says, look, I am not, I'm not going to ask you to create a universe, but I would ask you to create a rabbit to give you some credibility among those people in the groom. so... I love that there are opportunities to point to the goodness of God through the order in the universe, and we are seeing here that it's not chaos that God created out of. God took something out of nothing. A cosmos is created, orderly universe, not chaos. Order, all because of Christ. Christ. Christ created. And honestly, when you look at this, this answers two of the deepest heart longings that you and I have. Why am I here? How am I here? Well, it's because God created you. I know, friends, here's the deal. I am very aware that we are in this debate of Genesis 1 and 2. Is it literal? Is it a, is it, is, are you a young Earth? Are you an old earther? Are you a creationist? Are you a theistic evolutionist? Like, I definitely want to encourage you to look at the how God may have created the universe. I do. I really do, because it is a beautiful picture of his power and his thought and design. But even more than that, I want to push you to understand why made us. And the scriptures make it clear. John chapter 1. How did I get here? God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. You are not here by accident. You're not here by luck, but you are here right now, June 28th of 2020, in this spot because God put you here. He knows that 2020 is hard. He knew that it'd be the toughest season you've walked through. But he chose to give you life, to create. How are you here? He has put you here, not by accident, not by luck. But also, why? Romans chapter 11, verse 36, for everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. You're part of everything. Great or small, he made them all so that they might live and move and exist in him. You may think that you've been on this earth to be the best doctor, lawyer, athlete, teacher, designer, mother, real sto- re- you know, retail store worker, uh, father, husband. You may think using all of your gifts, your talents, both the ones you've been born with and the ones you've learned to promote your legacy. You may think that's why you're here, but that's too small a vision. It's too small. Because you and I, you and me, our lives through through all we say and we do become an opportunity to point people back to the one who created them so that they too might fully live. You may have some tasks that you're really good at, but why are you here? To reveal Christ everywhere you work, live, and play. Paul then reminds them that Jesus is first. Verse 17, he existed before anything else. There it is again. And he holds all creation together. This is the new phrase introduced. We get that Paul is saying he's first, that he is supreme, that he is over all things. But not only did he get things started, he actually sustains them too. He is not hands-off. He is not saying, I'm going to get it all spinning, and then I'm going to back away and let this thing spin out. He is not just creator, but he is sustainer. He's not only all-powerful, but he's closely and intimately involved in every detail of our lives. I don't remember which of my two younger children this conversation was with. It was probably my youngest son, but I remember him really dealing with fear at bedtime he still does, kind of. And I remember him saying something along the lines of, you know, I'm afraid to go to sleep and that kind of thing. And I, and I remember just kind of going, you know what? God is always awake. He never sleeps. He's never slumbering. There's never a time when he's going to let things be out of control. He's always in control, always. And I remember him saying, well, I guess if God's awake, I can go to sleep. such a simple truth, such a simple statement, but there is nothing like going to sleep to see just how out of control you really are. Right now, you don't wanna fall asleep behind a wheel or on the job because people could die, right? But when you put your head on your pillow, when you close your eyes at night, it's an act of trust. It's an act of trust that's saying, God, you're going to keep all things spinning and you don't even need my help. Like, you don't need me to kind of co-pilot for you for just a minute. Like, to go to sleep is an act of worship to say, God, you, you really are going to keep things going. Like, I'm not, even, I'm not even needed to make sure the world keeps spinning. Like, there is nothing I can do to keep my heart beating any longer than you would intend for it to beat. There's nothing I can do to keep my lungs filled with air and come in, breathing in and out any longer than you intended. You have these things. Do you know the God who never sleeps so that you can? So Paul is saying, he didn't just create But he sustains us. Paul gets very specific as he points to the church. This is the the phrase, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. Now, head could mean in charge, but we believe that because of the way Paul has this laid out, it's not just about being in charge, it's we are dependent upon Jesus. Just like the body is dependent upon a head being attached to it, a headless body is what? A dead body. But just like something with no head is dead, something with two heads is a monster. Right? Right? Here's the deal far too often, churches grow second heads, whether it be an agenda, a cause. A strategy, a personality, a political tie, an agenda, you name it. When the church looks to any other head than that of Christ, she actually becomes less than she was meant to be. Well, we see Jesus as the head of our church, but we... Nope, you lost me at but. You lost me at butt. Jesus is the head of the church, and we really do live and move and breathe because we find our dependency on being connected to Christ. Paul will actually talk about these teachers as those that are not connected to him as we get further into the letter. Verse 18, again, he says these words, he is the beginning, there it is again, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. You, re- you think Paul wants the church to know who's first? You think he wants to? I mean, he's repetitive, and they tell you in Bible study you should pay attention when they repeat themselves. He's repeated himself multiple times. You and I need to pay attention. This time... This time he is first and supreme in the new creation of all who rise from the dead. Firstborn is also used again here. Again, not created, but in supremacy over position, place. Jesus often spoke of the new creation. Matthew 19, he says, I assure you that when the world is made new, the resurrection of Christ is only the beginning. He is the first to raise from the dead. And sure, you may say, well, what about Lazarus and all the other people? Those were resuscitations. Why? Because they died again. Jesus, first to raise, never to die again. He is supreme over all those who will rise from the dead. He is the one who busted out of the tomb. He is the one who broke free the death and sin and the penalty and the chains that were wrapped around us. He is the first to lead us all the way home. So he is first in everything as he should be. He led us out and is the firstborn of all that is new. Christ's resurrection only verified his miracles, the forgiveness of sin, the promises of everlasting life. If made by a dead man, they're no good. This is why we don't have statues. We sh- I mean, we shouldn't have statues of Jesus. You make dead people have statues. Jesus is alive. I don't need a statue of Jesus. You don't need a statue of Jesus. You need to look in the empty tomb and go, oh wait, he's not there. He's not dead, and you need to stop acting like he is. This is the truth of the good news. This is the truth of the gospel, a risen Savior. And he is the start of the new creation that we begin to experience as his people in the church. Paul concludes this portion with understanding why Jesus is over all things. Verse 19, For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. This is what Christ followers understand as the incarnation. Not that God sent someone in his place, but that God put on flesh and dwelt among us. Listen to John chapter 1. John posts a big picture of Jesus as he opens. So the word, Jesus, became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the Father's one and only Son, if you have seen me, you have seen him. That is what Jesus is saying. Christ's followers do not believe that Jesus simply taught a peaceful message. We don't simply believe that he was a prophet that spoke on behalf of God. We believe that God visited his creation to save her from her sin. One commentator put it this way. In a typical New Testament emphasis, Christ replaces the temple as the place where God now dwells. This is now where all that can be known and experienced of God is to be found. As if this isn't enough, that God creating us and sustaining us isn't enough, the pinnacle of this passage is God's redemption. Not only did he create and sustain, but he redeemed you and I. And through him, verse 20 says, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth through Christ's blood on the cross. Why did God put on flesh? Not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Now, I do need to speak to how this passage cherry-picked also has led to some very dangerous teachings in the church. If you reread verse 20, it says, he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth through Christ's blood on the cross. This passage, I need you to hear me, does not teach that everything is going to go well for everyone. This passage does not teach universalism meaning that in the end everyone is saved it does not teach that the scripture the whole of scripture does not teach that but there are those who have cherry-picked this to believe that in the end everything is going to be peachy and rosy and everything is going to be fine for everyone because god will eventually save everyone that's what it means to have everything made peaceful all of scripture does not teach this You might cherry pick a phrase. You may come to a conclusion based on one verse, but that is bad Bible study. What does it mean, though, is this. For those who have been restored in their broken relationship with God through faith in Christ, there is peace. To have peace with God is to put your trust and faith in Christ and to be reconciled and brought back into right relationship with him. It is a gift. It is not a work. There is peace for the heart who has been reconciled to God. But I also need you to understand that those who continue to live in open rebellion towards God and towards one another, their rebellion will come to an end. There will be an end to wickedness and rebellion, and in that way, there will be peace. Darkness and evil and rebellion and sin and war and death, they do not get the last word. So for those in Christ, there is peace. For those in rebellion, they will be put down. There is no rebellion that will stand when God moves. So in this way, peace will be made. This reconciliation is not just the starter pack. It is how we live now. From here until we enter safely at home. As the band comes and we close this morning, Paul knew that an incomplete Jesus, an incomplete view of Jesus, leaves us incomplete. You and I will continue to look for other things to add to our faith, to add to our experience, to add to this, to add to that, as long as we are not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. Paul knew that the church was being pushed in two areas. Jesus is not enough. Jesus is not God. And Paul powerfully argues, Jesus is God, so he is enough. If he's not... He's not enough, but because he is, he is enough. How can the Colossian church know that Jesus's salvation work is enough? We were leaving church one year and I I remember it. We were sitting in my truck driving home and my son Jude looked at me. He was probably six or seven. And he said to me, dad, if God created us, don't you think he would know how to save us? This is exactly the point Paul is trying to make. Jesus is not just Lord of salvation. He is Lord of creation, which affirms his credentials that he is Lord of salvation. It's not adding things to Jesus. It's seeing him more clearly as his people. Looking at Jesus' credentials, he alone, by his grace, saves us. During a British roundtable discussion, leading religious experts came together to try and decide if there were any unique Christian beliefs. These were not Christian men sitting around a roundtable discussing this. They brought up the topic of incarnation. Well, there are some religions that exist that talk about God visiting earth. So maybe it's not as unique as they say. The, the idea of resurrection. Well, there have been people that have said, the claim that they're religious figures rising and, and falling, and, you know, so maybe resurrection isn't the thing that's unique, although Christ's is. But C.S. Lewis walks into the room and he's like, what are you guys sitting here so desperately trying to figure out? And they're all saying, well, we wanna know what makes Christianity unique among all the world religions. C.S. Lewis goes, that's easy. Grace. So they get out their books and they're like, okay, so the Buddhist eightfold path, uh, no. Hindu, karma, no, that's not grace. Judaism, uh, law, no. Islam, code of law, no. There is one story on this earth and it's not written by you or me. See, works and approval and earning your way to have a better God experience, that makes sense in the mind of human beings, but not to God. And that's such good news. This is the powerful imagery Paul reveals to the church. You don't need more than Jesus, you just need more of Jesus. Seeing him clearly allows us to be who we were made to be. My prayer as the church is that if you have gaps in your views of God, if you're seeing him blurry, would you look through the lens of Jesus? Would you look at him, allow Jesus to address your views of God? Because according to scripture, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Father, we love you, and I just ask that in these moments, somehow you would point out Jesus is enough. And he's enough because he's God. And because he's God, he's enough. And if we have small view of Jesus, Lord, help us see him clearly. Not blurry, not hazy, not gaps in our thinking, but truly Christ as he really is. In your name we pray.